Um, yeah, yeah. The while I was speaking last week, um, I realized that I was saying things that were new to some people, and and so I I felt it in my spirit that we should get to the very heart of this matter. What? Why did Jesus come? Why did he die? What was going on when he was dying? And how is it that his death is our complete release and more than release, recreation, that we now are no longer what we were, but we are? And what, what does the expression then mean, in Christ? These are very basic, but I, I believe, as I spoke last week, um, there's a need to clarify that because we've been blinded by religion. And so in Luke chapter 23, you don't need to turn because you know this. It's one of the most well-known um, sayings of Jesus on the cross. In, in Luke 23 and verse 34, Jesus was saying, notice that was saying. Uh, it, it's, it's not he said. It's the was saying, which is the best way we can translate the, the words there from the original language, which means he said it again and again and again. Uh, this is placed among the sayings of Jesus from the cross, there were seven times when he spoke. That's not true, because he was saying this the whole time. And so other things he said, and it was done. But this one, at every step, of the crucifixion and the torturing that he was going through, he said these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then up against it, though this isn't part of what I'm saying, it just you have to look at it, that right up against that, it says, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. So here is the moment, or, or shall I say the phrase, that absolutely changes the history of mankind. And while he is saying it, the soldiers are throwing a dice like it's Las Vegas, who's going to get his coat, who's going to... Uh, I think that only um, shows it up. But Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. What does that mean? Um, right at the center, and I'm just going to go through the verse bit by bit and see what it's saying. Right at the center of that verse is this word, forgive. And I touched on it last week. And I think many people were sort of arrested by my touching on it. Um, but let's look at it, because it's the center. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So right in the heart, what's this text about? It's about Jesus saying, forgive them. And I said last week, and I say it again, that the word in English, the word forgive, does not fully convey what the original language says. Now, when, when I say this, it doesn't mean that that's a bad word. Um, it will do if you're English and that's the language you speak. It's, it's better than nothing. But if you really want to feel what this word is saying, uh, let's get to the heart of it. You see, the, the trouble with our English word forgive is that it brings a lot of baggage with it. 
there's a lot of ideas hanging on this word forgive. Um, just, just think about it. When you say the word forgive, it means something has happened between you and another person, and that something has offended you. It's, it's hurt you, and your response has been hurt. It, it shows you, you've been hurt. And so there's an energy of repelling the person away from you. You hurt me. And, and, and that goes on into sometimes anger. I, I'm mad with them. They, they hurt me, and I have a settled anger. And that's my attitude toward them. It's birthed out of the anger. And it has the potential, anyway, of revenge. That my first feeling is I'm angry, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get even with you. And, and so even the law says eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You knocked out my tooth, and the law says I can knock out your tooth. Because um, we don't like that, because you knock out my tooth, I want to smash your face. But um, he says eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so I, that's it. I'm, I'm going to revenge. I'm going to get it, make matters right. You see, and the least I will do is cut you off. I, I will say, I just, you know, I'm not going to invite you to my parties anymore, and um, I don't really want you around. Separation is there. That that's. I, I know that it's not in the word, but really it is. It's saying something has happened to produce this. And then forgiveness means that in me, the one who's been offended, there's a change of mind. For whatever reason, I, I change my mind. And I come to you and I say, I forgive you. Meaning I've changed my mind I feel differently about you now, and I just want to assure you that everything's well between us, and there's no more separation, and I accept you back into my circle. And it may be that you intervened to make that happen by coming to me and saying, I'm sorry, I did that, I've changed my ways, I retract it, and so I now make a response to you. Okay, I got a few nods there. You, you, that means you agree. That's what the English word forgiveness sort of means. Well, you see, when I come to the word that is used here and consistently used throughout the New Testament, um, most of the time for the word forgive, uh, it, it, sometimes the word forgive is translated from another word, which just means the graciousness of God. He's just, that's the way he is. And, and he just wipes the slate clean. But this one is one of the major words. And I'll tell you what it means. I mean, just straight off. It means, I release you. That's the most basic. It, it's connected to the word liberty. And I set you at liberty. It, it's freedom. It's to bring someone out of a restricted place, out of prison let you go free. And I'm, I'm the one taking the initiative in doing that. I come and I set you free. And it means, um, to show you what the word means, it's also used to describe dismissing a crowd of people. 
And so when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then the, the crowds went away, that word went, to, they, they were dismissed. That's the same word. They were forgiven. <laughs> uh, no, of course not. But that's what the word means. It's go. And when they're gone, there's no one to be seen. They're all gone. That's this word. It was used when a ship left the harbor. And you watched it go and go and go, and it got smaller and smaller until it went over the horizon. And when it's gone over the horizon, you can't see it anymore. It's not here. They use this word. It's gone. It's dismissed. It's gone over the horizon. They're not here anymore. That's the word that is used here. And, and so it means, um, actually, I tell you, it was used um, to describe a divorce. It meant that the bond of marriage has been broken and she is gone, he is gone, and there's no more bond between them. They go each their own way. That's this word that is used. And also it was used when a bill has been paid and there, there's no more irritating letters coming to your house and there's nobody knocking on your door. It's over and you will never have to deal with that again. Do you get the picture of what this word means? It's got nothing to do with somebody being upset. It's got nothing to do with somebody having to adjust their feelings and change their mind. It means I plunge into your life and release you. And whatever was holding you is now gone as surely as the ship has gone over the horizon. So this brings me face to face. With, with something that, and this is what many people uh, noticed last week. Uh, I, I have good news. I mean, that's what the meaning of the word gospel is. It's the goodest news you've ever heard. And the good news is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has never been angry with you. Now, that is to some people so shocking that they might leave the Zoom. But it, it's, it's the truth. You see, it's the truth. God has never been angry with you. That is something that has been imparted into the Bible. It's, it's not. God has not been angry with you. And, and that means he's never been repulsed by our actions even though you might have been told how disgusted he is with what you're doing and how he, what's that word? They, they take it from Habakkuk, but there's this whole, if you, I'm sure you all read Habakkuk every night, but <laughs> there's this entire conversation going on between Habakkuk and the Lord. And um, Habakkuk is shocked. I mean, he's a jolly good prophet. And he's shocked at what God is doing. He seems to be on the side of their enemies. And he comes to God and he says, well, what's going on here? We know who you are. You are so holy. You cannot look on evil. What are you doing? Playing footsie with our enemies. You're too holy to look at sin. And the Lord says, well, Get, take another look. I am, and, and, and I am working uh, in their lives. And I'm not so holy as to not look on sin. Well, there's an entire 
an entire edifice of what people believe based on that half a sentence that was spoken by Habakkuk that was contradicted by God. We say he's too holy to look at sin. And God the Father winks at me and says, oh yeah, he not only is, he is so holy that he does look on sin. Holiness is the passion of his love. And Jesus came, God from God, and dwelt among us and not only looked on sin, but embraced sinners and told them they were forgiven. And so that, this text brings it really right in your face. This is not God changing his mind about us. This is not Jesus doing something so horrific that the Father finally says, okay, 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 I'll forgive them. No, this is God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in a glorious conspiracy of love, saying, we release you. We've come into your darkness to break your chains and set you at liberty that you might come and know our love that we've always had for you, even though you didn't see it. That's quite a statement. For, for some of you, that will be the whole message right there. Um, that, that's the good news, you know? I mean, from the beginning, because I, I was raised to think that God is so, you know, mankind sinned and the rage of God like a dragon comes against the human race. Well, then one day I read the Bible, what a novel idea, and, and found out that's not true at all. That, that when man sinned, he went into this insane mode of hiding from the only other human on the planet suspicious suddenly and she was suspicious of him and they both hide behind fig leaves terrified of each other what's happened to them gone nuts and then they're hiding from god their lover the good god that's put them in eden and given everything they'll ever need now they're hiding from him. in the bushes fig leaves aren't enough you've got to hide in the bushes okay now see According to what they taught me, God is separating himself from us. He can't look on our sin. Well, that's weird. Because the Bible says God came looking for Adam. God didn't separate himself from Adam. Adam separated himself from God, but God wouldn't recognize the separation. And he came looking for Adam. And he comes and there's a, a beautiful gentleness he comes and he says, Adam, where are you? You know, what have you done? What's going on? And Adam says, I, I, I was afraid, afraid. That word has never been in, in the language of humans before. He must have made that up on the spot. Fear, to try and describe the, this terror that he has. And why, why are you afraid? Because I, I realize that I'm, I'm naked. I can't hide. And I love it. One day I'll preach on it. it God says, who told you you were naked? I mean, I, God says, I didn't. I don't see you like that. Do you realize you're dealing with a very different picture here? And so now when it all comes out, and Adam is by no means God's man of faith. <laughs> God says, what did you do? And he says, she made me do it. It's not my fault. Read it. It's fair in the scripture. 
So what about you, Eve? I didn't do it. The, the snake, the devil made me do it. You know, Isn't it? I mean, that's the first words. So what is God's response to that? Because it's supposed to be he'll reject us and throw us away. No, he says, well, I have wonderful news for you. We've already got this worked out. And Eve, it's, we're going to really do it for you because I know you are going to be beaten up by men for the rest of time because you, you led them into sin. Well, let me tell you, I'm on your side. And it will be the seed of the woman. And he will come and crush the head of the serpent. A promise. And a promise specifically, not only to the entire human race, which was Adam and Eve, but also to the one that is going to be put down because God says no. And so through Mary, and the early church called her the second Eve, through Mary is born, see, she, Eve, introduced sin to Adam. You could put it that way. Well, the second Eve brought forth the last Adam who would be to us the Savior. And this was all this incredible plan of love. He didn't separate from Adam. Adam kept on running as fast as he could, but I will never leave you. I will never let you go. I will never abandon you. Forgive, forgive. And so Jesus comes and he announces this, this word forgive, but remember, it means the release is dismissed. It's dismissed. So you can enjoy the love of the Father. And he addresses the Father. Notice that. He says, Father. I, that could take a whole morning if we really got into it. But just a minute. Jesus, as he's, as he's saying that, they've put nails through his hands. He's hanging on the cross. He's in the middle of this inc beyond word suffering. And at that point, there is a conversation going on within the Holy Trinity. The Father has not turned his back on Jesus. Not at all. He is there. He is part of what's going on. And Jesus, Son of God, addresses his Father. And when, when within the Trinity, there, there is not, not the prayer of please do. Within the Trinity is that mutual desire. And so Jesus, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he said, I only say what the Father says. So do you get the idea? This wasn't Jesus' idea that he's presenting to the Father. This is Father and Son having conversation about what the plan and the purpose has always been and now is. So he says, Father, it's, it's, this is it. Forgive them. Release them. Dismiss away from them. Let it flow away from them all that has been this hell on earth since they got into it. Father, a mutual desire. So the Father wills, along with the will of the Son and the will of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, is focused upon each one of us to say, 
release because he loves. And of course, this fits in with what is often not spoken about, but it's the most amazing thing, really, if you could find the most um, in the sufferings of Jesus. He was totally in control. Because I hear it sometimes as if, you know, where there was, you know, Judas, the betrayer, and he, he led the armies to the secret place where Jesus was, and there was this mugging. I mean, they, they grabbed him and took him. That's not the case. You, you read it. Not the case at all. Um, right in chapter 13 of John, well, prior to that, Jesus said, do you remember he says, no man takes my life from me. No man, he lay, lays it down, which is kind of cryptic in the light of what did happen, until you look really what did happen. In John 13, Jesus said, knowing that he had come from God and that he was going to God, that now um, the Father had delivered all things into his hands. He delivered all things into his hands. He says, you're in control here. You, you just, you go and do what we have planned. And then it says, and we say this every Sunday morning, we'll be saying it uh, to this morning, having loved, he loved us and he loved us to the end. And the word end there means to the terminus, to the fulfillment. It's the same word as Jesus used on the cross, it is finished. It, it meant the plan has been fulfilled. We've achieved our goal. It is everything we said we wanted to do is done. And so having loved us, he says, he loved us until the goal had been reached. He never quit until he had achieved what he came to do, which he says here is to release you and you are free. So he said, I'm not quitting. It's the same word idea as when the shepherd goes into the wilderness to find the sheep. He says, he goes until he finds it. You won't see that shepherd again until he's got a sheep around his neck. He, he's, he's not coming out. Jesus said, I'm going in and I won't come out until you are totally released and free to the very end. Okay, that was the preset. Then go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And really, I, I, one of these days, we'll just go through the whole thing because actually though it be the most horrendous thing on the planet ever. Yet on the other hand, there's a certain, um, I don't know, I'm trying not to use the word comedy, but I, I, it says they, they came. Now that means Judas, of course, would be leading the way. But it's obvious the Romans, the Roman army of uh, occupation, and the temple, and as Caiaphas, Sadducees, they were terrified of Jesus. They really didn't know if they're going to pull this off. They didn't know what he might do. And so here's Judas, and he must have been pretty uptight. And, and, he's, and it says a great multitude. It's been 
estimated that around six, seven hundred Roman soldiers with shields and spears ready for warfare are following Judas. In, but then the temple, the temple had its own police, uh, sort of a national guard type. And, and they, they carried their ammunition and everything else. So the temple guards, so you got 600 Romans and then another cohort of temple guards all to arrest Jesus, <laughs> who didn't even carry a knife. But <clears throat> so they come, but yeah, hold it. Can you see? And they all got their torches and, and, and the, the flickering of the light on the trees as they come. And you try and keep 600 men plus whoever many from the temple quiet that they're coming and Jesus steps forward talk about being in control he stepped forward and he said who are you looking for and they said Jesus the one from Nazareth and he said I am the name of God and 600 men and all the temple men and Judas and the centurion and the whole jolly lot fell back on their backs. Their swords go flying. They lay in there like roaches on their back there. Well, I would say it's over. You were right. You can't ever say what he's going to do. Now, you, you look pretty daft, you know. 600 great Roman soldiers all laying there with their legs in the air. Um, and Jesus helps them up, holds out his hands, and they have the audacity to arrest him. Uh, but he's already established that you're not in control here. No man takes my life. I give myself to you. And that is very, very important. He gives himself. He is not um, a person who is in the mode of reacting. It's not they're in control and now he's reacting to that. He's in control the entire time and therefore he's acting. What he does is his action, his choice. No one's making him do it. He stood before Pilate. Do you remember that? Pilate said, for goodness sake, man, speak to me. He said, I have power to release you. I have power to crucify you. Now talk to me. And that's one of the only times Jesus did talk. He says, you have no power. <laughs> Rome, they had the power of the world at that time. Jesus says, you have no power. You can't do anything to me unless it's been worked out between me and my father. And, and I mean, he just deflated Pilate, but says, essentially, I may be standing before you looking as I do, but I'm in control here. No, no one, no one. Do you remember earlier, much earlier, was it two, three years earlier, when he was in Nazareth? And they got so angry, they were going to throw him over a cliff and stone him. Do you remember that? And it says he just passed through their midst. I, I don't know what happened, whether they all paralyzed, were hidden. I don't know. But the fact is, he is saying here, all restraints are off. 
I'm not going to walk through the crowd. I've shown you who's in control, but now I stand back and you, mankind, you are released to do whatever your heart dictates. Do your worst. And says, God, I will take your worst and turn it around to be your salvation. It's amazing. And so he gave himself. And to and he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Who's them? Them. Well, obviously, it's the soldiers that have. And they were not just soldiers. They were the crucifixion battalion. They were chosen because they were actually perverts. They absolutely reveled in, in giving another person pain. They, they were delighted. They were sadists who were trained in cruelty. They, they, they knew exactly where to put the, the nails so that it would send screaming pain up your arms and all your nerves. They, they were experts in pain, torture. They were more than bullies. They, they were sick, and they were chosen because of that. Them, them. Yeah, but it's not only them. It's their commanders who are standing over there just watching to make sure everything's done responsible but yeah uh it, it's pilot pilot is over all of this so pilot's part of them and, and also who who set pilot up for this it was the high priest it was is the the temple annas and caiaphas it was that crazy day when religion and their worst enemies the military of rome shook hands and says we've got a common cause and religion joined with military and said, crucify him. So Annas is part of them. And, and then Herod, that drunken idiot who had just, he wanted a show and he had no interest in just intensify the sufferings of Jesus for my pleasure. Keep going. Them. And what about the crowd who shouted crucify him? And it was just a mob of people who do what they're told. And what about all those who didn't say anything? And what about the disciples who ran like frightened rabbits? And what about Peter who denied he ever knew him? What about John who sat there right under the nose of Annas and kept his mouth shut? And what about Judas? He's surely part of them. In fact, if I keep going... I end up saying that this is the whole human race that lays behind it one way or the other, whether it's the Pharisee who said, I would never touch that. No, but you'd sure institute it. Or whether it's the Sadducee that said it's worth it for money and power. Or the soldiers, because they are these perverts. Or if it's Pilate, because it's political power. I don't care. Keep going, keep going. And I end up with one great organic movement that began with the lie in Eden that now says, crucify him. That's why we say we're all there, you see. But his voice, you can say then it echoes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
Father, release them. They don't know what they're doing. Hmm. Them. Forget them. What were them saying? What are they really doing here? They, they were saying, silence him. Shut him up. We don't want to hear him anymore. Put him out of our sight. We're done with him. If we ever started with him. They evaluated him as utterly worthless. That's the meaning of crucifixion. If you were a citizen of Rome, you could not be crucified. You had to be a worthless nobody. Scum. Homeless. No connections. Then they could crucify you. So they, they looked at Jesus and the Jewish people, they said, if anyone hangs on a tree, if their corpse hangs on a tree, they're cursed of God. So they said, we must have him crucified. It's no good just doing a mugging in the night. We've got to have him publicly crucified so we can all say he's cursed of God. While the Romans are saying he's a worthless nobody. That's what them said. He's an insignificant babbler. They called him a witch. That, that's right up to this modern day in the holy books of the Jews. They call him a witch, a wizard, which comes down in our saying that, I don't know if, it's certainly in England, gee whiz. Gee whiz is short for Jesus the wizard. Um, it, it's saying you're a blaspheming demon possessed. And they, that's what they said. He's a pretend king, said the Romans. He's trying to take the place of Caesar. So away with him, get rid of him, shut him up. So he can get on with life as we know it should be lived. And that's all the mocking as they crucified him. They come by the cross and they mock him. He's a fraud. If he was the Messiah, he'd come down from the cross. That's them. And I hear Satan's voice in the background saying, I told you so. I could have given you every kingdom of the world and all its glory. And this is what you chose. We talk about the blood of Jesus. This is, I, I'm not going here. It's too, too difficult to talk about. But he, he was beaten with a Roman scourge. There's a lot of stuff said, you know, that it says by his stripes we were healed. Um, and, and you see certain pictures where it's just got stripes across the back of Jesus. That it is so, you miss the point. The scourge, the Roman scourge, was a thick leather thong. And at the end, it splayed out uh, to nine, even, I've seen 12 um, kind of strings. And at the end of each one is a piece of lead or a piece of bone or... So the idea was that as it comes at you, which can come at you with the force uh, of um, a magnum shot bullet, um, 
and there were two doing it, one on this side, one on that. And so they lashed and then this one lashed. And, and because of the way it was made, it would curl right around their stomach and tear the stomach and then tear the back and, and down the legs. And the whole thing was ripping the skin off. It wasn't just nice little lines across the back. It was chunks of flesh being ripped out. The Jewish people said you can only do it 40 times because that's you're going to die if you keep on doing this. And the Romans said, who cares? We, we do it until they're just about alive, and then we'll take them to be crucified. And so Jesus was probably lashed in that way 100, even 110, 20 times. And... Then, this is where I don't want to talk about it because it's, but his entire body was open skin. You could see the bones, you could see the organs. It was blood. When we say the blood of Jesus shed as if it was a neat little, no, it, he became blood. And then, of course, they put the thorns on his, and the thorns were yay long. And so, it, and you know, just a little cut on your head will produce a lot of blood. And they jammed that crown of thorns into his head. So his whole face is blood. They look at that man and they see blood. A and that's the only way we can look at it. To say by his stripes we are healed is more like saying by his, the bruise of his entire body. Um, is, is the, the healing. He's, he's beaten to a bloody pulp. And of course, this was nothing new to the Romans. And as I said, they, they enjoyed it. The, that was their business. But, and hear this very, very carefully, every person they crucified, which would be thousands, that was their, that was the Roman way our way or crucifixion and the whole world trembled at the power of Rome because of crucifixion. So these, these guys, they had crucified thousands and a thousand times over every hit of the hammer, every lash that they put, they heard the curses of the people. The screams were screams of rage. They heard it again and again, calling on whatever God they worship, saying, you're damned to hell, soldiers. And the, the soldiers, that was part of the fun. See how much screaming they could get out of the people. But every scream was a curse. Every scream was, was an empty threat to say, my God will damn you in hell. Can you imagine? As this time, and they look at this body that is blood. And out from the blood does not come revenge, does not come a curse. Out from what they have just done to him comes, Father, release them. They know not what they do. That, that's, I feel like stopping right there. I mean, it's, can, can you take that in? This just is just one little verse in the Bible. It's just one sentence. Hold it. And he said it again and again. He could hardly talk. 
if you realize what they had done, he's already in shock to the max. And once they got him on a cross, if you put your hands up and then let your whole body hang on that, you try and talk. You had to push your body up, which meant that you were pushing on the nails that were in your feet. Your back, which has been lashed, is against the rough wood. And that's in order to talk. And so he pulls himself up to say, Father, forgive them. I don't know. This is unearthly. They have never heard anything like this before. Never. Being cursed is their business. And now they face... They've never seen it before. They've never imagined it before. They could hardly report it. What is going on? Father, forgive them. Compassion? He's thinking of his persecutors more than himself. Father, forgive them. It's not strengthen me, it's forgive them. That is, he loved them to the end. I'm not quitting until this is through. He takes what they give and he doesn't say a word. That, that's the um, that crazy thing again. He didn't say a word. What, whatever. I expect a flash of rage. Come on, man. You're God. You're going to put up with this? One word. You know, it, it's, it's in in our expectancy as humans. That's why we have the kids' Superman comics. I mean, we expect man at his best and highest a flash of lightning, destroy your enemies. Don't you know who I am? Instead, he takes it. When he's already proved he doesn't have to, he takes it. And taking it, He says, forgive them. Can we get it forever straight? Seriously. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God, revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, is not interested in punishing you. Can we get it straight? For every blow of the hammer, for every lash of the whip, he says, Father, forgive. He's not interested in getting even. That, that, I don't know what to call it, that narcissistic thing that people worship, call it God. I remember, I remember, they told me when I was a, his, his majesty has been offended. The poor old God is upset. He's, he's pouting like a spoilt child. And so when is he going to talk to you again? I don't know. He's rejected you. He's abandoned you. He's too holy to look at you. Until he can do to Jesus what he'd love to do to you. And so they believe that all this was God punishing Jesus. Ever heard that before? What's, what kind of dragon do you worship? This is the beautiful God. This, this is the glory of God. That as they are in the act of sinning against him. They're doing it. 
he is responding with every doing of it with forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. And including the Father in what he's saying. God's not interested in punishment. That, that, that's the self-centeredness of human that demands that. Revenge is not born of God, it's born of a lie. No. That the cry of the Holy Trinity is, give me my beloved children back. Release them to me. That's the cry of God. And, and really, isn't that among the best of human? That if your child is lost, if it's in the clutches of a kidnapper, what is justice? Well, we're going to catch the kidnapper. I don't care if you catch the kidnapper. Give me my child back. You, you go down to where they execute people here in Texas on the night of the execution and, and, and where, you know, the people who have lost their daughter, lost their loved one to this murderer, and they're there at the execution, and, and the stupid press goes to them, well, are you satisfied? Your justice has been done. Punch them in the face. Justice is not done just because you killed the, the murderer. I want my child back. That's justice. Do you understand me? Say God was satisfied that sin was punished. What a poor, sick God. Now this God, this God that is revealed in Jesus is never satisfied till he has you in his arms. You're the lost. You're the lost. And the lost means you're precious to me. I will not rest until I find you. I'm coming in to get you. They didn't ask to be forgiven. It's the last thing in their mind. No interest in it. They did not. He initiated it. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know they're bound in the darkness to need release. Of course, that's true of all of us, isn't it? You didn't know you were bound until after you were released. <laughs> you thought that was normal. As I've often said, you didn't know you were asleep, did you, until you woke up and found out everything you'd missed. <laughs> you know, I maybe shouldn't say it, but... Um, I check out other, you know, I don't want to be accusing people of what they didn't say. So I check them out. And I, I check this out. Commentaries, you know, what do, what, do the, what do the guys say who are teaching the pastors of America when they go to seminary? What are they saying? This verse, I, I looked at this verse. There it was. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the commentator, I mean, again, you could laugh if you didn't cry. The commentator says, we've got to understand what Jesus really meant. Was, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do if they say the sinner's prayer. But then when you think about it, that's just about what is being preached in America. God will forgive you if. Oh. 
You've got to have enough faith. You've got to repent enough. But who knows that? That's why I get saved on Wednesday, get saved on Sunday, and try it out on Monday. I mean, I don't know what. How can I try to believe back to 2,000 years ago? Do, do I really believe? Am I really believing? And repent. And of course, we don't even know what that means. So we're trying to be sorry enough. I such an if. And the father and the son are sitting there biting their finger and saying, I hope they believe. I hope they believe. Because otherwise the whole thing shot to hell. So he didn't do much, really. He just got the thing started. But it's you that saves yourself. Because you have to have enough faith and you have to be sorry enough. Instead of this, which leaves me quite speechless, actually, that while they're in the act of sin, while they do not even know they are bound and in need of being released, he comes to that, well, takes the initiative. And he, through bloodied lips, and the screams of that awful place where others were being crucified. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. No if, no maybe, no perhaps. God in Jesus Christ, in perfect union with the Father, says, forgive. Because they know not what they do. I thought he was going to say, forgive them because they just put a nail in my hand. He doesn't bother with the specifics. He doesn't bother with everything they said. He doesn't bother with everything they did. He goes beyond that. Father, forgive them. What, what, what? Well, because it doesn't make too much sense if you use the word English, forgive, but release them. Release them from what? Release them from not knowing what they're doing. Because what they're doing, they wouldn't be doing if they were cognizant. So release them, not, not from a long list, laundry list of all the bad things I've done. And then we're going to have revival. So if we have revival, we're going to find another list. Keep on confessing, keep on confessing. Come on, bring it up, bring it up. Every last jolly thing you did. No, why did, the only question, why did you do it? And unless you handle that, you'll be doing again next week. So all our sins spew out of an inner corruption that the Bible calls darkness. And, and, and so he says, they don't know, they don't see. They, Father, Release them from the darkness so intense. They, that darkness that the Bible speaks of as the very essence of what sin is, is, is producing, it's so intense that what they were doing, they believed it was right. You have to get... They didn't set out to say, well, let's do something that's insane this morning. I'm, I'm serious. They, I mean, Annas and Caiaphas, the, 
I mean, they said it. Do you remember? It's in John. They said, it is better for this man to die than the whole nation is exposed to the world. It was the, he said it for the wrong reasons, but he believed it was right. He said, this is a good religious political decision. It's a good one. It will be better for us if we do this. Man was sincere. In that darkness, you are sincere over the stupidest, most insane things. They believed it was good. Pilate believed he had to crucify Jesus, A, to keep the Jews quiet, and that was his job, and B, well, the man did say he was a king, and that's a threat to Caesar. And Caesar certainly believed it was a good idea. And all the other mindless people believed it was a good idea because they were told it was a good idea, which makes them guilty of being mindless. And <sighs> They believed it was good, for the good of the temple, for the good of God. Huh. Oh, that God they worship. The good of Rome, the good of, the good of our economy, the good of everything. It's good, good idea. It's a profound darkness. I tell you, it's a terrifying darkness. Terrifying, because really, if you want to be alone, just think of this. Because in that darkness, you are alone. You're not really, of course, but that's, that's the darkness. It's horrific, because quite honestly, if anybody would ever stop just for a minute to realize it, that darkness is so intense. I don't know what I'm capable of. It's so dark. I don't know what's going to come out of a pit next. I'm scared of myself as to what I might do. And that's for real. It's a place of terrible fear. Fear. It's a fear of God, the ultimate idea that I've got. I'm afraid of that monster because he always threatens to punish. Do you know how many people said to me when, when this pandemic began, it was a, a nonstop, people said, it's God punishing us. Whoever brought that up, except the darkness of the heart of man that could ever think God would do that. They couldn't believe, they, they never went straight to the fact he loves me and he's my strength and he's my hope and he's my protect. No. God's going to punish us. Others said it must be the second coming. Who brought that up? Because we've got this dark. It's more than dark. I say it's profound darkness, horrific darkness that we believe. And then, of course, if you're screwed up in what you believe about God, you're screwed up about what you believe about you. We've lost ourselves in the darkness. Don't know who we are. And of course, we invented a God, of course. If you can't see the real one, you invent one that fits now these things I believe about myself. So I believe I'm guilty. I believe I'm no good. Then I'll invent a God that agrees with me to punish me. I feel good then. I'm going to be punished. That's what I deserve. We had a man so long ago, dear man probably has already met Jesus and knows the truth, but um, he came here 
end. And he called me afterward. And his words, he says, when I go to church, I want to be beaten up. I want to feel guilty. I want to be ashamed. And I want to know God wants to punish me. Then I feel I've been to church. Because he never felt he'd been to church when he came here. But why is that? Because we've made our identity as guilty, shameful, worthy of punishment. Got to find a God that would do it. Then we feel it's balanced, it's equal. How sick, how sick. What is sin? Sin is losing your mind. Really. If you've been to our Bible school, you know we investigate what is sin and it comes down to the fact it's insanity. There is no rhyme or reason or logic to sin that man should thus turn away from God. Well, let me quickly say this. We've got to come back to it, but can't leave it here. Um, what does Jesus mean? Release them. They know not what they do. Um, how are they going to be released? You know, I, I say, yeah, um, nobody had to be punished here to twist God's arm to release anybody. It's not that. But something's got to be done. They can't just walk out. God does not need to punish someone in order to say, you are forgiven. He just loves you. So he releases you. But how does that release take place? God himself must come and release us. We cannot release ourselves because the darkness involves what we think are the best things we can do. So it's not some good person that could do it. And we don't even see the need of being released. So Jesus, let me put it this way. You'll never understand what Jesus did when he came until you know who Jesus was before he came. You know, you've heard me say more than once that much of preaching in America anyway, and the, and the UK, it begins with the fall of Adam. Have you noticed that? Um, if you say to people, what is the gospel? They will begin by saying, well, Adam fell. Their gospel begins with Adam's sin. That's where it begins. And because of that, then Jesus had to come. So therefore, everything revolves around sin. And, and we well, see, I don't believe that. If you think, I know you've been saying it. You've said, you know, what I say isn't like others. Well, now you heard it. I don't believe that. <laughs> When people sometimes say, you know, I don't believe in God anymore. And I say, nor do I. <laughs> not, not the God you thought you believed in. And now have seen through him and say, I don't believe in God. Only the trouble is you never knew there was the real God. No. Well, I don't believe this all began with sin. Uh, what happened before that? How did man show up? Why did we show up? 
Why are we here? That is a long time before Adam sinned. Well, there's some time anyway. You go back in, John does it. John in his gospel and all the other, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they start with Jesus being born. John goes back. In the beginning. And he describes the Holy Trinity. Father and Son, union, face to face, unbounded, unearthly love binding together. The Holy Spirit revealing the Father and the Son and celebrating love as well as being one with the love. In the beginning. But then, if you pull in Colossians chapter 1, as well as John chapter 1, you have a double thing that in him, Jesus, hear me, hear me, in him, Jesus, in the beginning, in him, all things were made. There was not anything made that was made that was not made by him. Sometimes the Bible piles it on just to make sure you get it. Colossians says he created all things, all things physical, all things material, all things in an invisible world, principalities and powers. He created everything. He is the creator. But then it says in Colossians, in him all things consist, which in plain English means he didn't only create it and say, well, there it is, now we can go and have coffee. Rather, He's the one that is his life. He holds it together. And so when you get to the very pulse of the leaf, you're going to find Jesus is holding the atoms of the leaf together. Every atom in my body is, should I say, glued to one another by the word of Jesus. He... He's not just the creator. He upholds it all by the word of his power, which means, can you get this? He has a relationship. He has an inside relationship to every human being by virtue of the fact they wouldn't be here, but for the fact of his creating them and his holding them together. You say, I don't believe that. That's tough. I mean, it doesn't bother me if you believe it or not, because it just is. You don't believe in air. You don't believe in gravity. Well, that's okay. You're sitting there proving it is there. Take one look at a human being and begin to realize there's more here than a heap of dust. You, you are dealing with someone who from the beginning was held together. And from the beginning, it was the purpose of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that in that relationship, humankinds were born, they were created, their destiny to be inside of Christ and Christ inside of them so that they actually participated in deity. They would be called the sons of God. And they would know the Father because they were in Christ. That was the plan. So love brought the plan. Love 
created to bring about the plan. God, who creates, is stating he will not be God without you. You are going to participate in his deity because you're inside of Christ, the Son of God. Okay. So man said, no thanks. He believed the lie which had that element of truth. Satan said, declare yourself independent and you shall be as God. Well, he, Eve should have slapped his face and says, you daft snake, I am already in Christ, in God. But no, she's sucked in. I can be independent. And independent, I will not be participating in deity. I will be an origin of deity. I will be a God. A God without God. That's what she fell for. And as she fell for it and Adam joined her, there descended upon them this horrific, profound darkness in which they could not see the reason they were created. They couldn't see why they were there. Adam didn't break a law. He broke a relationship. Sin is, is not just a list of bad things. It's more like a virus. That's what it is. It's more like a virus. And the New Testament speaks of its corruption. That it's got... This thing is alive and it's reproducing itself and it's continually breaking down, breaking down. Darkness, virus of death. So what does the creator who holds every human together and is in, inside in that sense, a relationship to the what's, and these, these people were made for him to bring into the Holy Trinity. These are his people. He's not just God. He's your lover from the get-go, before anything happened. So what does this lover do when his beloved has lost her mind? He goes into, into, into the darkness. He's going to find her. That's the incarnation. God, who holds everything together, now becomes one of the things. He becomes a human because he's going to get you. Love will not let you go. He's the shepherd who will find his sheep. Love gets pretty violent sometimes. And he's coming after us. And that's the story of the incarnation. I'm God. I, I, I know God bless you. God bless me. You're Americans. I'm a Brit. And both of us are just as bad as the other. I'm me. You're you. I'm independent. I do my thing. Us, them. All those kind of things. It's unique to us 
especially Americans, you take the gold medal, but we got a silver. So, <laughs> you know, we had an empire once. We thought we were the, anyway. Do you understand me? It's very hard for people to think that Christ the creator was in the human race as the creator and upholder of all things. Because, well, that's in me, in you, in you. Da, 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 da. No, can't. Think of it that the human race is a tree. We're not a bunch of independent logs. We're not even independent twigs. We're a tree. And the roots of that tree are, in the beginning was the word. And the tree... Have you noticed all the branches are connected? Did you notice that? Every little twig, every little, everything in the tree is all connected. And what happens anywhere on that tree affects the whole tree. That's the human race. And that sap that's holding the whole thing together, his name is Jesus. In him all things consist. And when the tree goes rotten, he comes in. And they thought he was just a little twig. He came unto his own, and his own didn't even know him. Nor did they want him, because who does he think he is? Talks like he owns a tree. <laughs> he came in, and he came into the darkness. And that's his life. He's continually facing the darkness, the lie, and continually responding with the truth and with light. But how will he get inside the darkness? The only way inside the darkness is that he is going to submit to the darkness. That's why he never spoke. It says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. That's written 700 plus years before Jesus came. It must be terribly important that he didn't open his mouth. And then Peter says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And therefore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. By his wounds, we were healed. What's it saying? They said all of that to him. He didn't say, you're wrong. He says, I accept that. And we look and say, he must be crazy. They, they say, crucify him, damn him to hell. He's worthy of being cursed and he's worthless. And he doesn't say anything. He, he doesn't say, no, that's not true. He doesn't say, one of these days you're going to find out. No. Bring it on. I take it. He's submitting to the darkness. They nail his hand to the cross where he's already proved he could just wipe them down on their backs in a word. He's saying, I take that. I take it. 
And as he takes it, he is entering into a new kind of relationship, not one as creator, but one as who coming inside your darkness. I am going to know you at your worst. That's why all restraints are off. I put myself into your hands, do your worst, because I've got to come into your darkness and know you at your worst. And when I've come into the heart of your darkness, and I know my coming in has cost me every rip of my flesh, every lash of the whip, every hit of the hammer, that was the cost of submitting to the darkness, to get inside our darkness. And as he there is one mass of blood inside our darkness, knowing us at our worst, we're in the act of doing it. He says, I'm here. I'm here. Right where the whole thing starts. Now, Father, release them where they don't know what they're doing. Bring them out. That's what the blood of Jesus is all about. Every other man's blood on those crosses. And probably Jesus was one of the worst. But every other person ever crucified, their blood that the Roman soldiers were spattered with their blood screamed, curse him. But this blood is reaching out and saying, I love you and you're released. And this blood is but the cost of getting into your darkness. And so now, out of this blood, I say, you are released the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world into himself. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses. What's he cleansed? Because the message of that blood comes into every nook and cranny of the darkness of your soul and says, release, release, release. This blood embraces you so that you are washed in the blood. And with every embrace of this blood, it says, I love you, I love you. And you cannot do anything bad enough to stop me. And you must understand, it was said to the people who were the torturers and murderers of God. I think your sin is included. And of course, then the finale, he goes into death. And by the edict of the Father and by the life that he is, death died. We've talked about it before. Resurrection isn't just that he came out from death. Resurrection means death itself died. And therefore, it means every effect of death is rolled back as if it never was. Where does that take us? Back to in the beginning. Because he who is 
the one who upholds me as a creator has gotten inside my darkness, has said, released. And now he's inside of me in a very new, glorious way, but still that relationship. But now I in him, for me to live is Christ, for Christ to live is me. Where he is, I am. Where I am, he is. And when he rises from the death, he carries me with him. And he carries me to the Father and says, we're home. And I brought the whole jolly race with me. Here we are. And he's the last Adam because he brought Adam out of the tomb. And here we are. Father, forgive them. Release them. Dismiss it all away from them. Make it as if it never was. Because we love them. That's what it's all about. And I'm hopelessly over time. I do this quite often here, so sorry. Um, yeah. See, it's not we try. See, I don't say to you, try and believe that happened. Because if it was some formula that took place that if you would believe it, we could make it happen. No, it isn't. Because then you've got to stretch your belief back 2,000 years to say, I believe, I believe he rose from the dead. You know. This Jesus, who in his own being has put away sin by his own blood has declared your release. This Jesus who was dead and isn't and never will be again and he's wrapped you up in himself. This Jesus is here. And here is here. It's almost like this virtual room. Jesus is here. Where? Well, we don't use the word where. He just is. Where are you right now? You in Vermont, Mississippi, Hawaii, or are you here? Are we there? Yeah. No, see, the words are useless. Jesus is. So where you are, he is. And I mean that. He is. And what's he say to you? I'm the first and the last. I am livingness. I was dead. Behold, I'm alive. And if you believe upon me, Death is out of your life. You never die. Your sin is a past issue. See, when he rose from the dead, that was the end of the Old Testament. I'm afraid most people in America haven't got the memo, but the Old Testament is over. Have you noticed how many people, they, they pray from the Old Testament, they use the promises of the Old Testament. Get a life. The Old Testament only points to Jesus. It, it's the Old Testament. Hebrew says it's ready for it to be ripped up and thrown away. We, we have the Old Testament because Jesus does fill its promises and Jesus is in his all shadows and types and pictures. But don't go, don't start, don't start thinking Jesus came to give us an 11th commandment. No, he did away with the law. There's no more sin consciousness. Good grief. 
You mean he went through what I've tried to describe this morning, and when that was all done, you still said, well, there's all this sin we've got to deal with. Are you deaf? It's done. It's finished. It's over. And God himself said, your sins and your iniquities, I will remember no more. Get up to date and stop remembering them. Stop acting as if you're a worthless sinner. Oh, God, we're so unworthy. Shut up. He said that you were of such worth. He would love you until he got you. He has bestowed on you an eternal worth. That was yours from the beginning, incidentally, because he loved you then. And so you were, you were created of supreme worth. Well, the rest has got to wait probably till next week. But do you get it? Father, release them. They know not what they do. Oh, the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, rest upon each one, opening the eyes of our understanding, that we might see the extent of love and know that we have been released in Jesus Christ. Amen.